this song, which I've always thought of as a bit of a um, almost a downcast love song, which shouldn't really go hand in hand, but it, it works. And it makes sense that he would write it about an ugly girl. <laughs> okay. Welcome to the Echo Spire Song Destruct podcast, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. This is a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, deconstructing chord structure, song architecture, production design, and arrangements. We rate and review the effectiveness of these song elements and evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. Today's show is going to be titled... The major to minor chord sequence will be analyzing Air That I Breathe, 1972 or 1974, depending on which version we're talking about. Albert Hammond, who wrote the song, or the Hollies, who popularized the song. And we'll be contrasting that with Creep, written by Tom York of Radiohead, released in 1993. What do you have to say about these songs right off the bat, Ryan? Hey, Wes, good to be here. Um... Not much. Uh, I could definitely hear the similarities when I went back and listened to them. If you were to listen to Albert Hammond's version, it's clearly a singer-songwriter, early 70s, kind of Jim Croce-inspired type of... I would, I would hesitate to call it a folk song. It's almost more of a hymn. And when I did a little bit of research on this, I learned a story where Albert Hammond says he wrote it for his ugly girlfriend. Hmm. And uh, he, was give, he was giving that as a compliment because he said she was beautiful on the inside, but on the outside... There was uh, some lacking qualities. So <laughs> I like the fact that he owns up. What a to charmer. This song, which I've always thought is thought of as a bit of a um, almost a downcast love song, which shouldn't really go hand in hand, but it, it works. And it makes sense that he would write it about an ugly girl. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, here's the deal. The Hollies, of course, they they put the strings and they layer on lots of reverb some prettier vocals i would still say the vocals on their version tend to be a little bit more haunting than romantic but i would say that what they add to the song is that stylized version of a mid 1970s single which is to say they kind of poured a bunch of syrup on it didn't necessarily make it better i think it ages kind of poorly if you listen to it today it sounds straight out of the mid 70s uh, so that's not in its favor in terms of whenever you're listening to a song, you're trying to figure out, is this a timeless record? Is this a timeless production? I don't think so. If anything, I'd say that Albert Hammond's version kind of stands the test of time better just because it wasn't pretending to be anything other than it was, which was a singer songwriter, three minute ditty, not a large, well distributed single across America. 1974 touched number six on the u.s billboards little bit of a uh, record history here their first big hit which i think most people would know would be bus stop love it came out of 1964 love bus stop now let's contrast this real quick with creep so creep again a weird little kind of love song actually it's a creep song so tom york writes it because he he sees himself as a stalker to this girl writes it about his relationship to her, which is essentially creeping and kind of peeping at her. And of course, the production, as we discussed last week, some of the lessons that we were able to take away, 
he dresses the part. They dress the the music video for the part, and they dress even the way that the the chords are arpeggiated. They dress it in this type of almost sensual fingernails touching your back in a kind of creepy type of way. That's how <laughs> that's how creep is dressed up, and I think that it works in the favor of making this song launch Radiohead's career. And uh, Tom York's eye. Were you going to say that? Tom Tom York's eye. Yeah, has one. What? He has one lean eye. I don't know if you've ever noticed. Oh, correct. I, I'm just saying. I'm not <laughs> ripping on someone's eye. I just he can't help. Creepy. He can't help it, but it helped the, the creepy <laughs> vibes. I think a little bit. Now, creep hit number thirty four on the Billboard 100 in its in its day. Again, that's not very high up the charts. It was all over MTV for a while, but uh... yes, and. That's the thing is that MTV, while we both grew up on it, as I've kind of looked back in retrospect, it was largely not in tune with what the, what the radio was playing. So MTV hmm. today, if they even play music, I think that they are more in tune with the radio. I think they've synced up. But in the early 90s, not the case. Well, because it's example after example of where MTV was their top 10 was not the top 10 on the Billboard 100. Well, yeah, I guess it was based at least somewhat on the visuals too. You had to make a good video. In Money. that case, I give MTV credit because it was probably a little cooler. You know, Radiohead was not necessarily going to be a hit band mm -hmm. based on that first album. And then I remember my first thoughts when I saw the Creep video was I'd never heard falsetto. I don't, not, not mm. like that. I mean, maybe I had, but I didn't know what it was because when he first, when I first heard it, I was kind of like looking at my friend like, are we are we yes. allowed to like this? Why is he singing so high? <laughs> I think I like this, but uh, I just want some assurance here uh, that it's okay. Yeah. But anyway. Yes, and indeed, you're jumping ahead to the end of where I was going to say downstream mm -hmm. from Creep is Coldplay's entire act. <laughs> because it's all falsetto. <laughs> it took a little while, but you know where all that started too? Jeff Buckley. Ooh. But wait, wait, I'm, I'm going upstream from him, Bono. Did Bono sing a lot in falsetto? Well, heck, we might as well abandon that and go way upstream to John Lennon, who liked to sing in falsetto himself. Mm. But I guess, like, to make it your brand, like, I, I, it's been a while, but I, I would doubt Jeff Buckley ever had a song where he didn't go to falsetto. You're right. Um, You're right. To, he made it his yeah, brand. Like, to, like, this is what I do. This is my thing. Going back there that I breathe, which was a single, it was the last single for the Hollies. I started kind of thinking outside the box and I thought, what else is an indicator of, you know, where this song stack ranks in terms of other songs over the last 50, 60 years of pop history? So I came across several different metrics. The first one being, what's the highest selling single of all time? We got Bing Crosby with White Christmas, 1942. Ooh. It's still the highest selling single. It sold 50 million copies. And just to give you a sense of proportion, second place Let me guess. is... I just was thinking, uh, I watched a documentary on Princess Diana the other day, and I was thinking, remember when Elton John re-released Candle in the Wind? Yep. Is, is that, that it? 33 million copies. Oh, yep. I swear I didn't know that. That was just... Wow. Yes. All right. 33 million. Then it begins to drop precipitously to, down to like the 16, 15 million range. So White Christmas, 1942 which is in the middle of Nazi Germany, World War II, uh, axis of evil. That's the reason White Christmas touched a nerve. People went out and bought that song largely because 
it was a bright shining light in the middle of uh, uh, a very bleak and era. It's not so it's again. Not, I'll be home for Christmas because I remember that was a big WW2 song, right? All these Christmas songs came out of the same era. It's just that White Christmas being Crosby really touched the gotcha. nerve. You know what? Here's another weird, interesting fact: the third highest selling single of all time, "In the Summertime" by Mongo Jerry, sold 30 million. That is a bit strange because I bet most people today, I'd say nine out of 10 people haven't even heard that song. And yet it's the third highest selling single of all I time. I know I've heard it, but I'm, I'm having trouble coming up with what it is. In the summer time oh, when the yeah, weather is hot. That outsold Summertime by uh, Will Smith? Uh, Will Smith might have sampled <laughs> it, but I'm no. <laughs> okay, so the highest selling digital single of all time is from 2015 oh. by Ed Sheeran. Oh, a Gangnam Style. Okay. Shape of You. Uh, 2015 sold 41.5 million to date, and it's, that's going to climb through uh, the next decade because Ed Sheeran's not going anywhere anytime soon. The most radio play a song's ever received, Chubby Checker, The Twist, 1960. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there's a few different ways to sort of categorize the relevancy of whether a song has really been um, widely distributed. You got radio, you have internet, mm. but then of course you have album sales. And even beyond these types of metrics, you have streams, MTV, oh. top 10 streams. So there's lots of different ways. And I'm going to be coming up with different as we kind of make our way through various songs in different eras. I'm going to try to figure out all the different ways that songs tend to be stacked ranked, but moving on. Let's talk about the blueprint of these songs. Uh, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here because honestly, both of these songs are fairly conventional. They are verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and then Creep has an interesting little falsetto um, bridge, middle eight melody that he sings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could call, call it a middle mm -hmm. eight, but it's still over the same chord structure. Both songs basically have the same chord structure throughout the entire length. If we're talking Air about that, I breathe has a different chorus. It does have a different chorus, but so here are the chords. Um, G, B7, C major, and then C minor before heading back to G. So that's the uh, pattern. Right. Now for the chorus, you get D to G. Nothing spectacular. As far as creep is concerned, you're looking at G, B, C, C minor, G. and then it repeats. And it it goes back to G only for the beginning of the phrase again. Right. And it's the same for the verse and the chorus. He only changes up the melody for the middle eight section where he says, she's running out the door. Now, let's talk about that, because if you look at Creep, as much as the song is very similar to Air That I Breathe and the chord structure and the way it feels, it's only that middle eight that Tom York actually samples anything right. of air that I breathe. So this is going to be an interesting point. And this is kind of a little bit of a lesson I want to draw here early is that you can have a song with the same chord structure. In fact, there's literally been thousand songs probably written on the same chords, be it the GCD box or the G E minor C D box, lots of boxes, lots of conventional chord structures. But if you make that melody, even just a tiny bit, deviant from the other song that you heard a million times it can sound completely different especially when you start to stack the arrangements and the different melody or the harmonies and the different lyrics and everything else that goes into making a song it can sound completely different even for somebody who 
knows what they're looking for in terms of finding the similarities between two songs. Sure. With all of that said, the name of this episode is major to minor chord sequence. In that, we are in the foundation phase of building this song, the chord structure. So I want to talk about how pretty much everything hangs on the C to C minor chord sequence and what that's actually doing even if we're talking to people who wouldn't quite understand music composition or theory, I want to make this as central to the narrative of what this song's actually accomplishing. So the C to C minor, what that feels like, I'm going to name out a few other songs. If you go back to In My Life, uh, which is, <laughs> I think, the first song that popularized this. I knew you were going to go there. At the end of In My Life, when he says, In my life, the falsetto. All he's doing there is he's changing from an A major to an A minor. Now, it's been done many times, but as far as I could think, and I was thinking about this for the past week, I think that this song, Air That I Breathe, is the first one that does it that's not just at the end of a song, that they constantly go from that major to minor, and that's what gives it that haunting sound. Even for people who don't understand music theory, that's essentially what major to minor chord sequence does, just like at the end of In My Life. So, Creep, again, uses it throughout the entire song because it feels creepy. And that's the reason why they're using it over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. As a quick tangent to this conversation, I just want to throw out there, moving from minor to major is much harder to do. Right. But I'm going to throw out, I'm going to throw out two different versions, just again, so that the listener can have something to contrast with what I'm talking about. To move from a minor to major, that's the end of Bohemian Rhapsody. Nothing really matters to me. He's moving from the A minor to the A major. He actually t technically does an A major seven. Hmm. And that's what that little piano, when he kind of flutters it across, there, right. you're moving from minor to major. The first song to do it was the Love and Spoonful with Summer in the City. When he says, all around people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk hotter than a match head. He's moving from minor to major right there hmm. and it's all on the same chord and if you think about it how much it changes your psychosis as you're moving from minor to major or from major to minor it's essentially one of the oldest parlor tricks in the songwriters lexicon the you, different things they can are you play. gonna do you have anything to say about whether it's usually on the four chord or in this case obviously uh with creep it's on the c mm -hmm. so it's on the four Yep. I feel like, and then that's the same way it is in, in my life. I think it's actually D, D minor, and then back to A. Because those things want to resolve back on the root. Correct. But I don't think I've ever... Bohemian Rhapsody, same, same thing. thing. If you're in the key of G, you can definitely see a D minor. But mm -hmm. I don't know if you see the, the as you call it, creepy D major to D minor in, yes. in the, as a fifth, as the fifth chord. I don't know if you see that as often or as much. So funny you should mention mm -hmm. that. Because as Air That I Breathe comes out of the chorus, which is G to D, G to D, G to D, the transition to get back into the verse, it has to go from D to D minor on the fifth. Really? And then it comes back down to C before resolving the G. It's that part where he goes, all I need is the air that I breathe. Right. So that's their way of resolving is to throw in yet another major to minor. So right. we're in the foundation part of building a song. If you're a songwriter and you're figuring out the chords, this is what we're discussing. And I just want to say that this, both of these songs pretty much make their bones in this part of the song. Now, a lot of songs, especially modern music, tends to make all their bones in the open house or the finishes part 
of building out this real estate. But singer-songwriters of the early 70s were so much more, especially the Beatles. Beatles would make their bones in the blueprint phase. They'd make an entire song off of how cool the, uh, it might go verse, chorus, then verse, middle eight, chorus. And they'd kind of move the components around and get funky with it. They do the same thing with the chords and the foundation. Of course, they got wild and crazy in the mechanicals phase when they're layering on different types of uh, sounds and effects. But I just want to say that modern music, they walk through the blueprint, the foundation, the mechanicals, and they don't do anything very inspiring. But on the finishes, you know, working with the new sonics that are available in terms of mixing, that's where they spend most of their time, unfortunately, because as far as I'm concerned... I don't really care if you put a new coat of paint on some old teardown. Well, you need to <laughs> tear it down, rebuild it. Well, to that point, though, I also don't care what the structure is as far as whether it has a middle eight or not, or whether it does the repeats the chorus twice at the end. Or the, I don't care about that if the song's no good. So, having said that, though, plenty of songs. If I can come up with one on the top of my off the top of my head, I think Beatles made an entire career out of this where they made the song probably have just a little bit more life to it just because of how they arranged the verse, pre-chorus, chorus. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're fond of saying they were thrifty or they, they, they weren't greedy. They were not afraid to throw in one of the best melodies into a one-time use middle eight. Right. I still think it's around, especially in country music, that you will likely see some kind of an interesting guitar intro or some kind of a nice outro and on a vocal, and they'll use it just once, right? And not feel the need to have to reuse it three times in the song. Part of that is just people trying to fit everything into three minutes, so usually you don't have time to repeat. Even you know, I couldn't tell you the last time right. I heard a song with two middle eights on the radio. I don't even think that's possible today. Sure, yeah. but anyway, um, the other thing I was going to say is, I feel like sometimes I wonder you can sort of read into the blueprint of a song what they probably wrote first. And I think it's probably safe to say, you'll never know for sure, but especially in the case of Creep, where the whole song is the same four chords, that they they wrote to the chords. They played the chord progression over and over, and then he came up with the melodies, he came up with the lyrics. Absolutely. I think he, he got that one initial note in his mind which is when you were here before couldn't look you in the eye at that point the song's just writing itself he just had to nail that first melody having said that air that i breathe if you really listen to it critically i think the the melody is rather lazy i think that i think it just kind of drones on and somehow or another it does manage to be effective But it's it's breaking a lot of rules and it is lazy. Mm. So moving on to mechanicals, let's start with creep first. I don't think that much is being done in the mechanical phase of air that I breathe. I think, again, they were lazy here. They threw in a lot of reverb on the triple tracked vocals and they throw in kind of an intro to the song that I feel like has nothing to do with the rest of the song. It kind of feels just mid 70s. I could see a, you know, rock star producer saying, look, guys, we got to. When this comes on the radio, it's got to feel like inspired by Led Zeppelin or whatever was particularly hot that month. And it has nothing to do with the rest of the song, which is, again, more hymn-like. Having said that, Eric Clapton has said the first note of this song. I don't know if he's referring to the verse or he's referring to the yeah. intro. But he yeah. said that 
has more soul than right. he's ever heard. <laughs> he said that in the seventies, though. It's a it's a very he was high in cocaine. Well, that too, but he he yeah. was that first bent guitar note. It just sounds like <laughs> something he was always trying to do, especially yeah. in the seventies. And he, you know, Clapton's always said things like that. As far as I know, he used to say things like his dream in life would be just to play one note that made the entire audience cry. Like he likes to be hyperbolic and romantic. romantic about what and what <laughs> what a, a guitar can and cannot accomplish so so on creep i do believe that the mechanicals are a big part it's probably the second biggest part to the song after the the foundation with the chords the way that they arpeggiate the guitar notes over the verse and then how they pull it out for the chorus and instead with the chorus they go with kind of a furious strumming kind of define their sound that was kind of all over pablo honey their first well, album and the 90s but, seem kind of chock full of verses that are broken down into simple bass lines probably mm-hmm. stemming from nirvana pixies influence i don't know that's more your department but mm-hmm. that's what i remember a lot mm-hmm. of like these sort of grunge songs where the verses were just simple root note and then maybe a little bit of deviation on a bass with guitars yeah. like doing something in the background but not much kind of lean lean sure. guitar noodling but you have to admit that that little guitar rip before uh where he says you're so special and they rip the guitar yeah. that was so novel i mean this is this is in the day where you have metallica out there doing all kinds of palm music right. and distorted guitar but nothing like that had been recorded i didn't i don't i didn't know that well let me think about that so it's weird because that's such almost cliche now but you're right i don't know maybe it was novel at the time the reason why i think radiohead gets credit for it is because to this day their uh, lead guitar player whose name escapes me who kind of moved on to uh movie soundtracks he he's known for kind of playing around with sonics the whole point of what's going on there in that guitar rip is not that they did a palm view johnny johnny greenwood yeah yeah what they're doing, and it, it you can do it today if you just get out your digital audio workstation, you just throw compression all over it, and that's exactly what it sounds like. Now, at the time, I was taking guitar lessons. I remember my guitar teacher, I asked him, I said, how are they achieving that? He goes, oh, they just turned it up really loudly. That's not true at all. It's It had everything to do with actually probably not being loud, but they just threw on a lot of compression, and they overdrove the sound signal to achieve that <laughs> In any case, it's perfect. Right, right. <laughs> because then enters the chorus, which is uh, Tom York's beautiful alternative rock falsetto operatics. Did anybody compete with Tom York's operatics in the 90s? What do you mean by operatics? His ability to sort of hold a long note. He was kind of a, almost a classically trained singer. I've said it before, but uh, the only person I could think of was Jeff Buckley. Yeah. I think that in that case... Radiohead was pretty original mm-hmm. for their time. And like you said, you know, if Coldplay took that torch and ran with it a little bit, but it took that took another eight, nine years. I do. Here's a piece of personal trivia. First CD I ever bought, Pablo Hunt. I mean, it sounds cooler now. I didn't know at the time. It was just, oh, I saw that video on MTV yesterday. So that's and I happened to be at Circuit City and I just got a CD player. Probably the only piece of indie cred, uh, hipster cred, that I actually had in my <laughs> life. So I wanted to share that. Let me share my indie cred. Uh, the first CD I ever bought uh-huh. was Smells Like Teen Spirit. A little cardboard single. Uh-huh. I couldn't afford the whole oh. album. I think 
think my brother actually kind of nudged me to buy it uh, at Sound Warehouse. I think it was five bucks, something like that. But that is definitely indie cred, yeah. and it probably is even worth some money at this point because it was released on one of those uh, cardboard boxes. Wow, didn't have enough money for the full album. Poor <laughs> you. Rough childhood. <laughs> All right, so talking about the finishes of the songs. Again, Air That I Breathe, not much to talk about. They do layer on some harmonies. We discussed in the last episode how you always want to be progressing with some layers. I do give them some credit for the kind of cathartic chorus all i need is the air that i breathe and to love you there's something novel to that i almost think of the early 70s which is when this was written as being a bit of a, a long hangover period that everyone was still sort of uh trying to get sober from this 1967 through 1969 overdoses everyone wanted to be sober this song reminds me of that feeling of I just want this over with. Can I just get back to being straight? <laughs> uh, it's masquerading as a love song, but I think it's a, I want to, I want to come down. I think you've got the one decade too early on that. My understanding is that <laughs> the seventies, things just got worse. Disco. And yeah. it was just drug city. Every, everything. Rating and reviewing mm -hmm. this particular Holly's version. I would give it a three out of 10 on its finishes. <laughs> In fact, I would give it kind of a five out of 10 uh, across the board. I give each blueprint foundation, all of it. I don't think they did that much. Neither did Albert Hammond do that much with the melody versus on, on the other side of the fence, Creep. He is able to manage kind of a cohesive melody that is pretty natural sounding, despite the fact that it's hitting its sixth it's sevenths, first and fifths. We've long said that if you're writing a weird song, it's not to your credit that it still sounds weird. If you write a weird song and you manage to make it sound conventional, then you've accomplished something. And that, to me, is what Creep is able to do. But Air That I Breathe is not able to do, despite the fact that the chorus is very mainstream. Air That I Breathe, the verse is quite torturous to listen to. It's a meandering vocal. The air that I breathe has never struck me one way or the other. I, that was, song was barely on my radar. So you said you wanted to talk about it. I, I kind of <laughs> went and looked at it. I was like, oh, I've heard this song a million times. I never even really considered who it was. Mm -hmm. uh, I, didn't, I wouldn't have been able to tell you what year it came out. I would have guessed the 60s. That's largely due to the production quality, which is pretty vanilla. They're not doing much. It came back onto my radar maybe eight years ago when it was featured in a film called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World with Steve Carell. Mm. And they used the song to great effect at the end. It's told from the point of view more at a molecular level where people are like, we know that a comet setting for the earth, it's all going to end how we're going to spend our last 30 days on this earth. And, you know, some people kind of hire out assassination services to have themselves killed. And, you know, they kind of come up with some weird offbeat storylines. But Steve Carell basically just wants to sort of fall in love and uh, he answers this ad for someone saying, seeking a friend for the end of the world. I don't want to die alone because his right. wife leaves him when she finds out the world's ending. At the end of this movie, they use this song to awesome effect. They have them play it in the room on a vinyl record player. It's very warm with the little pops of the record. And he sends her on her way back to her family, something of that nature. This song works quite well as a soundtrack on a modern movie. And I think when songwriters are, when, whenever they're penning that, that latest song, almost try to think of yourself as writing a song to a movie, whatever that <laughs> movie might be. You know, and that means the lyrics, because I think that that's going to steer you down a road where your lyrics are going to be a little bit more universal than you might otherwise focus. 
I think the second thing is, is that you will be thinking bigger. If you're thinking about this song's going to be playing at the climax of a movie, it's going to make you raise your game on your chorus or your verse and just make it appeal a little bit more broadly. So a little bit of a songwriting lesson there, right in your mind with a movie playing up on the screen with your song in the background. Mm -hmm. I think it will help. Okay, talking about the open house of Creep, if we're talking about the mix, and again, the mix is what pockets have they created? I think they create an awesome pocket. The way that the chord progression is carried is carried by arpeggio in the verse, and then the arpeggio cuts out for the chorus, where they go to a furious strumming guitar, kind of more whitewashed in the background, and allow Tom York to become the center of attention. Keep in mind, anytime you release a song or you re you're releasing a band like Radiohead, there has to be a point of singularity, a point of focus. There has to be like a design to all of this. We, we can't have five different things we're focusing on. It's just like when you're composing a picture, you have to let something be in the foreground, let something be in the background. This is called creating the pocket or creating the mix. And I think that Radiohead nails it. They created lots of cool pockets, especially visually, the way that that music video comes across. They're really selling Tom York as the lead singer. Lesson number three, if that's what we're on in this uh, episode, ask yourself, what pockets are you creating as you're writing your verse, your chorus, your middle eight, or you're thinking in terms of the layers, what pockets, what's supposed to be in focus at this particular time at, during that song? And it will help you to get to that next level of writing a song with more stakes. If you are the judge and jury, and this is brought before you, the uh, case of uh, The Air That I Breathe versus Creep as <laughs> copyright infringement, wh what's your ruling? I think that uh, Radiohead did a lot with the foundation of these chords, whereas I think Air That I Breathe didn't do much at all. The, the melody is meandering. So I give Radiohead probably a 7 out of 10 overall in terms of what they're able to accomplish with the exact same chords. He literally doesn't infringe until the middle right. eight. The middle eight, he does infringe. Right. He did not write the song trying to imitate, but once they found out that the chords were the mm -hmm. same, he did intentionally, and he admitted to intentionally imitating the melody from Air That I Breathe uh, as his falsetto yeah. solo in the middle eight part. Right. You can't admit to doing it and not get... <laughs> caught yeah i didn't know he admitted it yeah. wow okay well case closed <laughs> okay so talking about what's upstream from air that i breathe i just want to kind of throw in a few of these because i think as songwriters we should try to deconstruct what might have inspired this song and i got a pretty good one and it goes back to 1959 sleepwalk mm. sleepwalk is the instrumental with the wow yep the reason why I say so is because, you know what, I didn't even bother to think out the chords. I don't know if there's a major to minor in there. Probably not. Maybe at the end, uh, as you know, the major to minor tends to come at the end as sort of a period at the end of the song. The creepiness of Sleepwalk is probably the earliest known creeper song that I can think of. So I have to say that it's <laughs> upstream okay. from air that I breathe and from creep. For that Isn't matter. it kind of Hawaiian? Um, it's a little darker than creepy Hawaiian. Hawaiian. And then... Nineteen sixty one, we got Crying by Roy Orbison. Mm. I think he kind of nails the melody operatics that Tom York obviously is kind of sampling, but I think even the original air that I breathe, the way that he's no da 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 that sounds very Roy Orbison, specifically crying. Well, 
1961. No, uh, no disrespect to Roy Orbison, but I got to take Don McLean's version of crying. And Don McLean is from this era, from the era that I breathe there, 1971-74 was kind of his heyday. Right. Point taken, his crying is awesome compared to Roy Orbison, surprisingly. Yeah. Okay, Procol Harum, whiter shade of pale. It just has a sense of a hymn oh, style yeah. to yeah. it. And, and again, that's what I think uh, was being sampled in the 1972 version by Albert Hammond. Now, downstream, I'm just going to throw one out there. There's obviously tons that could be downstream from this particular record, but I'm going to throw out... 1975's Bohemian Rhapsody. This Holly's version comes out in 1974. I think that Freddie Mercury has to have heard it, has to have kind of found the, the, the melody and the hymn nature of it to be a little bit inspiring. I think there's a lot of that same theme and feel in that early section of Bohemian Rhapsody. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? There's, there's a hymn nature to that song, for that matter. Sure. And by him, I keep I'm referring to church hymns. Yes. These songs tend to be sung without music, or they're designed to be sung without music, which very much Bohemian Rhapsody starts out as a hymn. Downstream from The Creep, as I mentioned earlier, Coldplay's entire act. Upstream, too many influences to name, but air that I breathe. So that concludes talking about these two songs that we wanted to compare and contrast today. I want to talk about next week's episode. I think you're going to like this. What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, 1966, a Jimmy Ruffin tune, which has a lot going on in it in terms of chord structure, melody. I'm going to contrast all of that mm -hmm. with, wait, Whoa, <laughs> wait for tell it, me. 1986, If You Leave, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, OMD for short. If you leave, don't leave now. Please don't take my heart away from Pretty in Pink, the movie. Okay. Got it. All right. You might not realize it, but these two songs are almost identical mm. in terms of their foundations. I'll go on to prove that in the next episode. But Can't wait. in any case, I just want to remind the listeners that this entire podcast is in support of a technology I hope to release in 2020. It's going to be a social network for creatives. So the entire point of the platform is to sort of automate what's long been done offline, where you have your tribe, your two or three or four friends. I want to multiply those ears and give you two or three or 10,000 friends inside of a network where you can share your content with other people who understand your content, other songwriters. So with that said, we will end this podcast. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening.